Hello, and welcome to Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia. In this episode, we will be discussing domestic violence and domestic violence protection orders. Before we begin, of course, we have a disclaimer. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm providing legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time the podcast is published. This podcast is scheduled to broadcast in July 2022, and information will be valid up until that date and time. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia. This information relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes only. While our host and guests are attorneys, the information presented is legal information and does not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As noted, I'm Clint Adams, and I will be your host. I'm joined today by Dominique Razuk. Dominique works with us in our Charleston office. Dominique, what do you do at Legal Aid? So I am what we call the domestic violence project coordinator. And what that just means is I look at our different domestic violence programs and coordinate services um, with the West Virginia Coalition Against Domestic Violence for legal services across the state. I've been with Legal Aid for almost nine years now, and my time has focused on domestic and sexual assault litigation. In 2018, I was the West Virginia Bar Young Lawyer of the Year. Your knowledge and your skills, and as you noted, the respect of your peers, uh, makes you a, a great asset to Legal Aid of West Virginia and a great asset to our clients. So we're excited to, to have you on the podcast to talk about something that you know a, a good bit about. Before we get started on that, though, uh, we noted that you work out of our Charleston office. What's something that's fun to do in the Charleston area? Well, in the summertime, our mayor has decided to block off Kanawha Boulevard on the weekends. It's right along the river, so you can walk, you can run, you can do whatever, bike activities without worrying about traffic. And we also just recently had our library renovated, and it is wonderful. So there's a coffee shop there. Um, there's just different exhibits. There's classes that you can do. So you might want to check out their website and see, but I would recommend just checking it out if you're in the area. So sounds like there's a lot of exciting things that are happening happening in Charleston, our state capital. There is. Now, today we're going to talk about domestic violence. Um, one of the things I think when people think of domestic violence, they think about this being a crime, something that may be prosecuted by a prosecutor. Is domestic violence always a crime? It is not always a crime. When we get into crime, we're talking about a prosecutor, usually starting with a police officer, deciding to take things to court over some type of physical violence or threat of physical violence. But there are many times domestic violence is not physical. A lot of times when you talk to victims, they will say what caused them the most 
trauma and the most harm was the emotional abuse, the threats and control um, is really what the heart of domestic violence is. And when that uh, um, pattern of power and control over the person um, is being exerted, one of the ways that that shows up is with physical violence or with threats of physical violence. But it is often things like making sure that person feels like they are nothing without this other person or that they're nothing, period, using isolation. If the person is within the LGBTQ plus community threatening to out them using any kind of privilege that they might have over the person. So there's many ways that domestic violence can occur that is outside of the criminal realm as far as whether they a person would be prosecuted criminally. So what would be the occasions where you would think it would be something that would be considered a crime and, and maybe you should contact the police department? There are a lot of different ways something could be a crime. But what I would say is if there were, if there's physical abuse, if there's sexual abuse or contact, if there's harassment, some kind of cyber bullying or stalking, and if you really don't know and you feel like you're at risk or unsafe, then I would say contact your local domestic or sexual assault program or contact your local law enforcement. But I would say only use 911 if you think it's an emergency. Now, whenever you're talking about obtaining a domestic violence protection order, those would be things that may or may not meet the criminal definition. Is, is that correct? That's correct. Domestic violence and domestic violence victims, if you're going through a criminal route, they're a little reliant on law enforcement and prosecution to decide that this fits within the realm of a criminal act under our law and also that they can meet a high standard of proof. And there is an alternative to that where the standard of what you have to prove is lower. And that is through a victim filing their own petition for protection against the person who is perpetrating domestic violence. Dominique, when we talk about domestic violence, those, those words have meanings. What, what does it take to qualify for a domestic violence protection order? Can you file one against your roommate? Can you file one against your cousin? What are, what are some of those requirements? When I was talking about the power and control that you might be experiencing as a domestic violence victim in order to get um, a domestic violence protection order, you have to show that first it's domestic and second that there's violence. So for a domestic, to show that it's domestic, we need to show that this person is living with you, that this person is a, someone you've dated or someone you've been married to, someone you have a child with. 
and then there's some different family categories and that's things like if they're your sibling if they're your cousin if they're a parent or a step parent or a grandparent or a step grandparent I would also or, note there's 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 information on that on our website at uh, legalaidwv.org as well. So there is information on our website about all of this. And then the other thing is um, with that family relationship is if the person you are living with has that kind of familial relationship um, that I just explained with the perpetrator. So we have domestic and then domestic violence. So for it to be domestic violence, we have to go, the law for a domestic violence protection order is gonna be above what we think of as the social definition, that, um, that social definition being the power and control. When, when you need to get a protection order, where do you where do you go to get one in West Virginia? You can go to your local magistrate's office and you should be able to access these services 24 hours. What if the courthouse is closed? If the courthouse is closed, then there should be some avenue for you to still file to get in contact with the magistrate. You can contact your magistrate office or you can contact your law enforcement to see how to connect so that you can go and file. So we talked about filing at the magistrate court. Is that the county that you live in? Is that the county that the abuser lives in? Or is it uh, any county that you're staying in? Where can you file a protection order? When this option was created, it was really intended to be flexible for the victim. Um, so we really can file in the county where the victim has relocated, uh, in the county where the perpetrator resides, or in the county where the abuse occurred. When you go, you meet with the magistrate, and the magistrate issues an emergency protection order, does that then prevent someone from contacting you, the abuser? Are they not allowed to contact you after that? The order will say that they're not allowed to contact you, but you should keep in mind that unless the abuser is there, which is rare, they are the abuser, those restrictions will not apply until they are served. So after you get the emergency protection order from the magistrate, what will happen is that they will try to serve the respondent or the respondent being the aggressor. Once they are served, those restrictions are in place, but they have to be served first for it to be counted as something that really applies to them. Served is a fancy legal word that really means that they get a copy of it so that they know that this protection order has been filed. And, and then what will happen after they, they tell the other side there's in this protection order file, don't contact each other, what, what will happen then? The paperwork that you get after you um, have the emergency hearing with the magistrate will put a hearing date on it um, where um, you can appear and where the other side has the right to appear in front of the family court. When you have that hearing at the family court, what's the judge looking for? The judge is really looking to the victim. The victim has the burden to show 
that there was some kind of physical um, harm or threat of physical harm. How do you show that? I mean, there's different grounds for showing that you need a protection order. One is if the other person caused you harm or attempted to cause you harm. Another ground is if they really put you in a fear of physical harm that was reasonable. Another way is if they are creating that fear of physical harm based on harassing, based on stalking, psychological abuse or threats. And then another ground is sexual abuse or sexual contact. And the last ground would be if they held or confined or detained you against your will. So there's different ways to show it, but what we're trying to show is this person scared you into believing that you're in fear of physical harm or that this person caused you physical harm. And how do you present the evidence? You can testify. You can tell the court what happened that puts you in fear of physical harm or that caused you physical harm. A lot of other common things that folks have to kind of support that because if you have things that support um, what you're saying beyond your testimony, that's certainly helpful to bring would be things like pictures of the physical harm, pictures of damage to items. Um, it could be a supporting witness who maybe witnessed some of the threatening acts, um, although that can be rare to have. If the police were involved, you might have a police officer also um, testify. If there was a 911 call, that can also be used. There's different evidence that you can bring in to kind of support what you are saying. How do you get the police to show up at your hearing? The police do not have to show up at the hearing um, just on their own. You can contact them and ask them and let them know about the hearings. No one, including the police, are required to come to court unless they are subpoenaed. And they would talk to the local circuit clerk to have a subpoena issued if they're not represented by an attorney. Is that correct? That's correct. There is a form that can be um, used to try to issue a subpoena. And you can go to your circuit clerk's office after you have filed to try to subpoena a witness. Now, we talked about uh, the elements of, of getting a protection order as far as uh, fear of physical harm or physical, physical harm, harassing, threatening acts, sexual assault, or holding and confining another against their will. When we talk about the holding and confining, I mean, does that require a kidnapping or what are we talking about there? It doesn't. What we're really talking about is that you are scared of leaving because of what the aggressor is doing. And that doesn't necessarily mean I blockaded the door, I cannot move physically. It could be something through intimidation where you cannot move because of what the aggressor is doing. Now, if there's been an incident like this and then somehow you got away maybe the police were not involved um I, I, think, I think that's something we see a fair amount how soon after this incident would you recommend someone should file a protection order 
Well, I will say um, a victim knows best the ways to protect themselves. But generally, if you are considering filing for a protection order, in terms of the legal analysis, it's often better to file it as soon as you can, just because unfortunately, there may be questions as to why there was a period elapse on time since you left before you filed that you would have to answer and explain potentially um, in court. So whatever you as the victim feel is best, but just know that this question may come up if there is that lapse. So when they when, when a victim decides to leave, they file the protection order um, and, and then they go to the hearing and, and if the court grants the protection order, what's some what's some of the things the court can do? There's some mandatory provisions that have to be in every protection order and then there's a list of permissive relief that a court can grant. Yeah, let's talk about what are some of those mandatory provisions. Our law requires that the order um, state that the, the other side cannot abuse, harass, stalk, or threaten the other side um, or their children. The law requires that the other side um, cannot have any firearms. So there's a process where if they have firearms, those have to be surrendered over while the protection order is in effect. It's required that the order explain to the other side that they can't have those firearms um, and that it must explain to the to the aggressor that this is in effect not only where the victim filed but in every county of the state um, and then it must also state that if there's a violation of this order the other side could be punished by going to jail for as long as a year and as much of a fine as two thousand dollars now i will say um, in terms of this protection order we um, even though it's issued in west virginia other states are going to see um, be able to try to do something if there's a violation too so don't feel like if if you go to a different state and something happens that you're no longer protected because that's not true. Right, and under the United States Constitution, there's what's called the full faith and credit clause, which says that orders from other states will be enforced among the United States, then, then the provisions would still remain in effect. That order still applies. So, you know, what I would say is just keep a copy of your protective order on hand. That way um, you could show people like the police if there was an issue. Now we talked about the mandatory provisions that are in there. Are there things that the court can do but doesn't have to do? Yeah, so there's a lot of different relief that a court can do. This could be things like the other side is um, we're going to grant the victim possession of the house that you might have been living in. Um, 
we could say if there's children, we're going to decide what kind of temporary custody and temporary child support we should be setting up. If there's children, we really, the court should do both of those things, child custody and child support in an order. You know, we're also going to look at if you're married to the person, should there be spousal support? If there is some kind of damage that you've had that cost you money, should that be reimbursed? Who should get possession of the car? Who should make the payments on the house and the car if you're married while this is all pending? So there's a lot of different relief. Another ground is if you have a pet, keeping possession of the pet. But basically the idea is what what do you all share? Or how is this going to protect you in the best way? Get, do you need possession of the house? Do you need possession of the car? Possession of the of the pet? How what are we going to do with the kids? Um, do you need support if you all are married in terms of spousal support? But if you're talking about temporary payments beyond child support. Now we talked about cases where they may involve children. What happens when the domestic violence is committed against a child? If there is domestic violence committed against a child, then we are still looking at the same grounds that I just mentioned. But if it's by a parent or a caretaker, somebody um, who has especially somebody who has legal custody, then we're going to look at some things in particular with that. If they caught, is it really going beyond normal parental discipline? Certainly when we talk about children, the reality is that they vary in ages between the ages of, you know, one or two all the way up to 17 or 18 and certainly varying levels of maturity and ability to communicate and things of that nature. So who can file a protection order on behalf of a child? A parent, guardian, or a next friend, just somebody who is an adult can file on their behalf. But a victim who is a minor does not need an adult to file on their behalf. They can, and they do have the option to file on their own. Um, I will say in that situation, a magistrate must appoint them an attorney uh, to help them through the process um, since they are a minor. Some situations, as you noted, to get a domestic violence protection order, there, there are specific statutory requirements that must be satisfied. Sometimes, though, parents aren't providing for a child's needs. Maybe the, the parent has a, they have a substance use issue and they're not providing for the child's needs. Could you file a protection order in a situation where the child's needs aren't being met? The protection order is really for those grounds that I mentioned before, which is really focused on causing physical harm or putting them in a reasonable fear of physical harm. If we are worried about their overall well-being, then we're looking at a different avenue. This might be filing for custody and asserting the reasons that you believe that the child is not safe. Um, Or if you are not a parent, it could be if, if you believe that you are 
maybe the person who is doing a lot of the caretaking, you could be considering something like guardianship. Um, if if that's not the situation or if you don't want to be a guardian, then it could be you're considering reporting things to CPS. So there's a lot of different ways where a parent may not be providing for a child's needs, but you would not have the legal grounds to a protection order and you should instead consider other grounds to try to address the situation. And there's more information about those issues on our website at LegalAWV.org. We talked about what it takes to meet the statutory definitions to file a domestic violence protection order, but sometimes your your spouses, your partners, sometimes they're just jerks. They may say mean, horrible, hateful things to you. Can you get a protection order for that? Well, you know, you really can't. That's not what a protection order is for. But, um, you know, if they are being mean or hateful, um, you really want to address that more because sometimes people may be experiencing the legal definition of domestic violence, but they may not identify themselves as um being within that category. So now that you've listened to the podcast, maybe that mean mean spouse or or partner or whatever it may be, maybe they are fitting into a category where you could get a protection order. But if not, you know, you may still be experiencing the social or be behavioral definition of domestic violence, which is that power or control that may not reach to physical violence or a fear of physical violence. I will say that in in my experience, certainly domestic violence, sometimes victims don't know that they've been victimized. There's been this pattern of control throughout the relationships, and oftentimes it's hinged on physical actions that have happened or physical threatening acts that have happened early on in the relationship. And sometimes people need to talk to someone who understands that aspect and who can dive a little bit deeper and talk about some of the the things that have happened in the relationship. And they may recognize things after talking with a professional. Who would you recommend someone would talk to in a situation like that? There is actually a licensed domestic violence program in each and every county of the state. So if it's been a while since there's been physical violence and you may not want to seek a protection order, just know that these domestic violence programs exist in every county. They can do things like they can advocate on your behalf. They have crisis intervention. They can refer you to other community services. They can get you connected with counseling. They have 24-hour hotline services. They have safety planning. They have temporary emergency shelter. Um, They provide some community education and awareness, and they have sexual assault services. So in a situation like that, assuming that you are safe, that would be the first call you think you should make is to the domestic violence uh, program. Obviously, if you're not in a safe situation, you should call 911 and request law enforcement to to secure the situation and make sure you're safe. Do I understand that correctly? You do, and it's completely um, up to you um, what you want to do if you want to call them, but that is a resource. And they also have some online information as well that you could 
get in contact with them that way as well. Dominique, thank you for taking the time to visit with us today and to talk about this important and sobering topic. Um, I appreciate you sharing your information, and uh, I think it added a lot of value to our to our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Friends, if you are in a domestic violence situation, if your family member, partner, spouse, or other person in your household has been abusive to you, whether or not the abuse has been physical, you should consider reaching out and getting help. You deserve to be treated with respect. You deserve to have a positive relationship with others in your life. And you deserve to live a life that is not in fear of being abused, put down, or mistreated. Legal Aid of West Virginia partners with the Coalition Against Domestic Violence to provide legal services to victims. Our advocates are available by referral from our coalition partners. You can learn more about getting assistance online at wvcadv.org or you can call 24 hours a day, 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. Additional information on this topic is also available on our website at LegalAidWV.org. Thank you for listening.